The first reading tonight is taken from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. The second reading is taken from the book of Romans, chapter 7. Do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? For example, by law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he is alive. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. So then... If she marries another man while her husband is still alive, she is called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is released from that law and is not an adulteress, even though she marries another man. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. For when we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now, by dying to what once bound us, we have been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law, for I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire, for apart from the law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandments, sin might become utterly sinful. This is God's word. Uh, Romans chapter 7. Uh, let's pray as we look at this together. My Father God, here are rich truths for us. Would you help us understand them rightly? So that, not that just we have knowledge, but we view you rightly. We relate to you as you desire us to through the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we cling to him, are ever more grateful for him. We pray it in his great name. Amen. 
Now, at this section of Romans, really, the, the issue is how do we change? How do we change? Now, some things are very easy to change. Your, your haircuts is uh, fairly easy to change. Um, uh, even for me, who have limited options, I could diet. I could. That would be one of my options. Your wardrobe, you could change very easily. But your character. How do you change your character? See, often in life we think, oh, I need a change. And by that we probably mean uh, uh, something significant, but not personal. I I need a change of scene. I need a change of job. I need a change of location. I need a change of country. I need a holiday. And all those things are good and uh, often well worth doing uh, and and have enormous benefits to them. But um, you'll still have your flaws, even on holiday, though they may be hidden. You'll still have your, whatever it may be, your anger, your self-sabotaging tendencies. You'll still have those. Even if you move countries. But how do we change our character? I read yesterday, it's a bit grim, but in one sense, I read yesterday, 50% of marriages end in divorce. 70% of second marriages end in divorce. For third marriages, it's even harder. And I wonder how, how you go through that point. You get into your fourth marriage or something and start to think, okay, it's time to end this one. I wonder if the problem might be with me. Maybe I'm not very good at marriage if you get onto your fourth or something like that. How do you change yourself, your character, your personality, your problems, your faults? How do you change? And in many ways, that is what gets dealt with in uh, Romans chapter 5 to 8, which we're returning to. We uh, left off in February. We did chapter 5, if you remember, and then chapter 6. That's how we like to roll around here. And now we get to chapter 7 after a break uh, of a few weeks or so. Now, if you were here in chapters 5 and 6, Paul has declared, it's quite simple, everyone essentially lives under one of two, one of two systems, chapters 5 and 6. You either live under law or you live under grace. Those are two ways of living, fundamentally opposed to one another. You might think of it this way in terms of relating to God. To be under law uh, reaches up. Uh, and you think, I, my relationship with God depends upon what I offer him. Whether he smiles upon me depends upon what I offer him. Whether he accepts me, whether I am righteous, depends upon what I offer up to him. That's a system of under law. Under grace is a hand from God that comes down. And God says, I give you salvation. I give you righteousness. I give you my delight. It's a gift. You're in relationship with me. It's not under law where you reach for me. It's under grace where I come down for you. We think, looked at that in chapters 5 and 6, and Paul had this dominant metaphor there in chapter 6 of uh, slavery. The metaphor or the picture changes here, and the dominant metaphor in chapter 7 is of marriage, which um, possibly has some more emotional traction than slavery, which uh, uh, we dislike uh, generally as a rule of thumb. Let me put it this way again. What does it mean to be under law or under grace? Marriage can work in one of two ways. You can have a marriage of fear or a marriage of love. A marriage of fear operates a bit like this. I need to look good or my spouse will walk away. I need to provide and earn enough or my spouse will leave. I need to help out around the house and and sort out the dishes and, and do my chores or my spouse will leave. But your behavior and how you relate to your spouse is driven by fear. 
unless I do these things, they'll walk, they'll leave. So the motive for how you relate to your spouse is anxiety, it's fear. I've got to do this or I'm in trouble. Okay, that's fear. By contrast, you have a, a, a marriage which is driven by love. I know my spouse loves me, I love them, so I'll help out. Hey, how can I be of more use to you? How can I help out with dinner? How can I help out with, you know, some of us? Uh, how can I help out around the house? Uh, I want to look good for you because, you know, I love you and you love me. See, there's two fundamentally different systems of how you relate. One, I've got to do it, otherwise I'm in trouble. The other is, hey, I, I'm loved, and I love, and I want to. The first system, the one of fear, is to be under law, in Paul's thought. I've got to, I've got to do this, otherwise God's not going to love me. I've got to keep performing or God will kick me out. That's to be under law. To be under grace, I'm loved. I love God. Of course, I want to change and develop and grow and bear fruit for him. So there's the difference. Now, if you remember, in chapters 5 and 6, Paul has said you, you cannot fall out of God's love. You can't out-sin the grace of Jesus Christ. No matter how much wrong you do, there is always more forgiveness if you're trusting in him. And so the obvious question Paul has been asking throughout chapter 6 is, so why bother changing? If I'm inevitably loved by God because I trust in Jesus Christ... I can do what I want. Why bother trying to be godly? Why bother trying to live a holy life? Why? And that's the issue that's come up in chapter 6. The answer, he said, because, well, you've changed. You're now united to Jesus Christ, and you've been changed within. You know how good he is. You know you're loved, and that's working its way into you, into your heart. So you want to love him. And that's where we've got to so far. Now, it's the same theme in many ways, but as I say, the, the dominant theme of chapter 7 or the, is, is the idea of law. The dominant picture is marriage. The question gets raised, Paul, you've been quite down on law so far. You've made this contrast, you're either under law, which means you live a life of fear, or you're under grace, which means uh, you live a life trusting in God. You love and you're driven by love. Those are two different motivational systems or two different ways of driving. You seem a bit down on law, Paul, but there is the Old Testament and you are a Jew, surely you should say something good about law. Has God's law, as he's revealed it, got nothing of any use for us to do whatsoever? Well, you can see where he's going here in chapter 7. He's going to say, it's great in the right place. So chapter 7 works a bit like this. Verses 1 to 6. He'll say there's been a significant change. Verses 7 to 13, here's how you related to the law before you were a Christian. And then verses 14 to 25, here's how you relate to the law after you're a Christian. We just can do the first half tonight. So it's a bit of a before and after. Okay, get your head around that. It's quite straightforward. Before you're a Christian, after you're a Christian. That's how the two halves of the chapter work. Just so you get it, hit it before or after, just so we understand. Have we got the... Um, uh, I don't know if we got those. I put a couple of um, before. There, there we go. So there was me before and after I went to the gym. Before and after there's been a significant change. Or uh, here's another one. Is that the same guy? Is it? Is it Hugh? Is it Hugh? Is it you? Is it Hugh Woodbridge, do we think? No, 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 no. Not quite. But 
You've got to look at that one. Is it the same guy? I'm not entirely sure. Before and after. But that's what it is tonight. Before and after, uh, there's a difference. How does God's law affect you before you're a Christian and after you're a Christian? Now, you might hear that and think, well, that doesn't sound electric. It's massively important. Because this is how you change. This is how you grow in your character, in your life. This is how you bear fruit for God. It's Paul's phrase in this chapter. So you've got to understand this. So they don't just get frustrated in the Christian life and think, well, I never change, never get anywhere. Or apathetic in the Christian life. Well, what's the point of doing anything? No, you can change if we understand this rightly. How do I bear fruit? How do I change? The answer is obvious. You marry Christ and not the law. It's an obvious answer. You could have all told me that. But you marry Christ and not the law. That's his big idea in verses 1 to 6. Let's flip down uh, with me. Uh, verses 1 to 6 are really making that point. You marry Christ, not the law, if you want to bear fruit or change. Uh, verse 1 asserts a principle. Uh, Do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to men who know the law, that the law has authority over a man only as long as he lives? Okay. Then we get an illustration in verses 2 and 3. And then he makes his point in verse 4. And I want, It's slightly dense. So I want to try and use a few pictures to explain it, the concept of what he's talking about. Please don't take offense. Uh, I'm just trying to make things simple. Okay, but I think it goes a bit like this. Here's his picture. Uh, verse 2. There's a man and a woman. A married man, excuse me, uh, verse 2, for example, e.g. By law, a married woman is bound to her husband as long as he's alive. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. There's a husband and a wife. If she marries someone else, you can't do that. It's against the law. It's adultery. But next, what happens if he dies? If he dies, it's okay. Yes, all right, I'm not very good at these things. <laughs> Don't mock my pictures. You're drawing them next week. Um, okay, he, she, man dies, what can happen? Okay, she can marry someone else. I tried to give him a different color bow tie, that was just beyond me. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. If a husband dies... No problem. A woman can remarry. If the husband is still alive, you can't. Okay. We get that. Now, what's, let's, let's explain that. Next one. Okay. Here is a marriage that... <laughs> all right. All right. It's for your benefit, not for mine. Um, here's Paul's illustration. The believer, or an individual, before they become a believer, actually, is married to the law, and it makes them miserable. Because if you try to relate to God under law, if you think it's what you do that makes you acceptable to God, you fall short. Can I keep the Ten Commandments? I cannot. Oh, so I'm miserable. Then Jesus comes along. I said, please don't take offense if anyone... Jesus comes along and changes things. Because what happens is... Next. Jesus dies, and the believer is united to him. And dies. This is what he's talking about, the picture. And so consequently, last, now the believer can be married to Jesus, united to him. Now, you may think this is all very silly. That's what he's saying. And what's this? I'm just trying to make what's complicated, slightly complicated, simple. The point is verse 4. We can lose that now, I think. The point is verse 4. 
So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who's raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. In other words, Paul says there are only two ways. Everyone is either married to the law or married to Christ. You're either under law or under grace. Everyone is in one of those two relationships as a way of thinking, as a way of relating. That's how it is. You either relate to God by fear driving you. is to be under law. I've got to perform. Or you relate to him driven by love. Only two ways. And when you become a Christian, you no longer relate to God through the law, but you relate to God through Christ. You're united to him. So again, actually, we could add a third way of relating to God, but just to, to muddy the waters a little bit. But you, okay, you either relate to God by fear. You either relate in marriage by fear. I have to perform or my spouse will reject me. I have to perform for God or else he'll reject me. Fear is a motivational system. You don't want that. You could have love. Which is what you want, ideally. I love my spouse. My spouse loves me. And that's how we relate. We're just great. We love to serve one another. Jesus has loved me in dying for me, and I'm thrilled by that, and that's what drives me to serve him. There is, of course, I guess, a possibility of a a third way of relating, a selfish way. You could be married to someone, not fear they'll reject you, but take them for granted. The selfish, lazy slob of a spouse who leaves their toenails in the toaster, who... No, that's... Sorry, that's... Toenails in the bathroom, crumbs around the toaster, those somehow in my head. That's a very unpleasant picture, isn't it? You know, who, who just allows the, the plates to pile, you know, you can be a late, who allows the plates to, to pile up until they just stink and fester in, in, the, in the kitchen. You could be a selfish husband and say, well, my spouse will just accept me, whatever. You don't want to be that sort of spouse. Who wants to be driven by that sort of attitude? Now, Paul says, When you're united to Christ, the motivation is you're driven by love. So you just see verses 5 and 6, there's an enormous contrast. Excuse excuse me, verses 4 and 5. Verse 4, so my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God. Because for previously... When we were controlled by the sinful nature, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our bodies so that we bore fruit for death. But now by dying to what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit, not in the old way of the written code. You see, the contrasts are very clear. Let me just put them next to one another. There's a before and after. Before you become a Christian, you belong married to the law. That's how you relate to God. Afterwards, you belong to Christ. Beforehand, you you bear fruit for death. That's negative. Afterwards, you bear fruit for God. Beforehand, you serve in the old way of law. Afterwards, you serve in the new way of the Spirit. It's completely different, he says, once you become a Christian. Bearing fruit for death seems a bit negative on what everyone's like before they become a Christian. You're not a Christian. Seems a little offensive. He's not saying that everything that everyone does before they're a Christian is wrong. But at its heart, what is driving you is fear. 
And that's a fundamentally flawed way of relating to God. The difference, verse 6, someone becomes a Christian. What happens when someone becomes a Christian? You serve in the new way of the Spirit. God changes you from the inside out. Before you become a Christian, God's law is a set of rules external to you. When you become a Christian, God's law becomes desires within your heart. God writes his law upon your heart. So what was external becomes internal. So you want to follow God. You're driven by love, not fear. So just, I mean, just, just very quickly, turn back when we keep a finger in, we're only going to turn back very quickly, but turn back to page 793 in Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36, Joel 2, the classic Old Testament passages on the coming of the Spirit, those three. But here in Jeremiah 31, we won't read it all, but let's just pick it up from verse 33. Here's the promise of what will happen. God says, verse 33, this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds. I will write it on their hearts. Do you see the external law becomes internalized? I will be their God. They will be my people. There's an intimacy that just wasn't there before. You couldn't know God with that sort of intimacy without the work of the Spirit. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord. They'll all know me from the least of them to the greatest. And all of that flows from verse 34, end of it. I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. When you become a Christian, that's what God does. His spirit comes and takes his external law and writes it upon your heart. And no longer do you think, oh, golly, look, there are ten commandments and a load of other laws that I have to keep in order to make God happy. When you become a Christian, you think, I know God loves me. And I want to follow him. I want to keep his law. If you're a Christian, you think, well, I don't always feel that way, uh, to be honest. No, but God is still at work. He's not finished with you yet. He's not finished with you yet. And as that truth works its way into you, The desire to please him grows, and it grows. So back in Romans chapter 7, verse 6. You serve in the new way of the Spirit. You think, I have a marriage to Jesus Christ now. I understand within what he wants me to do. And Jesus is my spouse, that's the picture here. And I don't want to be a slobbish spouse to him. I don't want to be a lazy husband or an idle wife who lets everything grow, mold grow in the sink and the bathroom goes to rack and ruin. I don't want to be an idol. I don't want to be a miserable husband who just takes them for granted. I know the sort of spouse that Jesus Christ is. He's magnificent. He's magnificent. I could never take him for granted. He's all powerful. And he's all kind. That's the sort of spouse I have in Jesus Christ. And he's died for me. 
Wow. I want to live for him. So that truth gets in. So the law gets more, uh, more firmly embedded in your heart. So the desire grows to live for him. I guess Paul's main point here in these first six verses is this. Did the law make you any better? No. It did not. Before you're a Christian, the law cannot make you better. The, if you like equations, it's very simple. God's law plus a sinful human heart equals fruit for death. Or secondly, God's law plus a spirit-changed heart equals fruit for God. When that change has happened, when you relate to him, not because you fear him, not because you think you have to please him, but because you love him, you know that he's loved you. You've got to marry Christ, not the law, if you want to be changed, he says. That's his big point. Now look at a couple of other things he wants to deal with in following that up. Verse, uh, verse 7, here's an obvious question. What should we say then? Is the law sin? Is it bad? Well, if, unless I've got a changed heart, I can't do anything. Is, is, is the law bad? No. Or verse 13, did that which is good, the law, then become death to me? No. No, the law is a good thing. But here are two things you've got to know about the law and what happens. Uh, one, law reveals sin, but secondly, sin exploits law. You've got to know those two things to understand this rightly. So verse 7, law reveals sin. He puts it very clearly. Verse 7, what shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I'd not have known what sin was except through the law. I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, do not covet. The law reveals sin. The law reveals how selfish we are. The law is like a, 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 a shaving mirror, which works best for the male sex amongst you. Um, but you know, a shaving mirror, not just a normal mirror, but a shaving mirror which magnifies everything. Uh, you look at you know, No one's nodding. Does no one shave? No. Uh, at least half the room have got to know what I'm talking about, surely. But you know, a shaving mirror, it's not just a normal mirror. The, a shaving mirror magnifies everything twofold, tenfold, I don't know. It looks horrible. But um, if you ever go up to a shaving mirror, everything is just expanded. Every blemish, every freckle, every mole, whatever it may be, no longer are they beauty spots. No, they're big warts by the time you look in a, a mirror. The Lord does that. We come to it, it just reveals how sinful we are. Because it defines sin. You know what's right and what's wrong. Whereas in the 21st century, it's very it's really obvious to you can see this now. How do people live if they reject God's law? If you have no concept that there's a God, and therefore you ignore the fact that there's a divinely ordained right from wrong, how do people live? I want becomes I should. I want it. Well, who's to say that anything's right or wrong? It's only me. I want becomes I should. And I desire becomes I deserve. I want a new car. I deserve a new car. I want more money. I deserve more money. Whatever it may be. You know, the fuss was made last year, but the great silliness, the, uh, the girl guides, uh, yeah, they did away with their promise. 
Yeah, there's a problem. There used to be, the, you became a guide. Again, this doesn't relate for everyone in the room. I get that. Uh, but you became a guide, and you, you'd swear you would promise to serve God. Was it three fingers? That was the scouts. You had your three fingers as well as guides? Yeah. Not, not that thing. That's completely different. That's, um, uh, but you, you know, you'd do your promise, wouldn't you? Uh, I, you know. Before the guy said, I promise to serve God uh, in everything I'm doing. But last year, they changed their minds, and now the promise is, I swear to be true to myself. What on earth does that mean? What does that mean? I swear to be true to myself. It simply means I desire, therefore it, it must be right. I'm bored in my marriage. I want another one. I'd rather be married to her than my wife. But I've got to be true to myself. I've sworn I'll be true to myself. Therefore I have to do what pleases myself. What does it mean? I'll be true to myself. It's absolute nonsense. And until someone comes along and says, hey, here is what God says objectively is true, it's only when, you're in, only when you encounter a law external to you do you realize how rebellious you are and you don't like it. So uh, when a law comes along we don't like, you get an obvious clash. And you get it at a very simple level. We, you know, we walk through the park and there's plenty of grass and we leave it alone. We see a sign that says, keep off the grass. We think, why? <laughs> you go to a museum. Uh, we took a few days off last week, did a few things. You go to a museum and, oh, that's interesting and that's interesting. And should we go over here? Maybe, go over there, maybe. Then there's a door which says, keep out private. Why? Well, what's behind that one? Or, you know, you sift through a load of mail. A load of mail comes uh, into your office and you know, dish it out, and then one says, strictly private and confidential. Why can't I read it? What's in there? It's probably about me. See, when we encounter something which says no, we don't like it. And it reveals how rebellious we are. It reveals our sin to us. That's what law does. More important choices. I don't want to pay tax. I like it. I prefer keeping my own money to paying my taxes. But there is a government law which says, well, that's okay. Don't pay your taxes, but you'll go to jail eventually after, you know, months and months, etc. Well, okay. I, I don't like it, but I'll succumb because it's in my self-interest. The, 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 the difficult thing comes, what if when God's law is not the law of the land? And God has plenty of laws on sexual ethics, on not having sex until you're married. Well, no one will penalize you. They're all fine. No, in this country, no one will tell you you're doing wrong. And so we encounter that law and think, well, I don't like that. I'd quite like to do things now, please. And we rebel. The law reveals our sin. If there's no laws, I desire equals I ought to. I have a moral imperative to. But having an external law says, no, 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 no. You're selfish. And we need it. Law reveals sin. But then in 8 to 11, there's this other relationship that the sin exploits the law. Let me read verse 8 and then try and explain it. Verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law... Sin is dead. It's Paul. Paul is essentially saying, um, sin is a bit like a moody teenager. 
grumbling in his bedroom. And so moody teenager is in his bedroom playing music far too loud and grumbling about the world and how everything is completely unfair and how you know he was cursed growing up in this household with these parents rather than any other parents. But he's just grumbling and doing his own thing and being grumpy on his own. Um, but then the law comes. A voice wafts up from downstairs. Donald? Oh, I don't know who it is. Tidy your room. Well, the law comes to the sinful, rebellious teenager, and now he rages. Oh, it was always there. It was always within him. But as soon as the law comes, you're so unfair, you're so unreasonable, it's my room. No one else I know in the world has to tidy their room. I'm the only child in the whole of this planet who has to tidy their room. You're the worst parents in the world. No, that's, that's been there all the time, but it's the law which, which raises that up. So sin exploits the law. That's what Paul is saying here. Let's carry on reading verse 9. Once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me, and through the commandment put me to death. Oh, golly, what's he saying? Now, this is Paul. uses I. Past tense. So I think Paul is describing his pre-conversion experience. But he does so, describes him in language very similar to Genesis chapter 3. The first sin in the Bible, the first sin in the world. Back in the Garden of Eden, what happened? There was a sinful serpent. Now into that situation, God gave a command. Eat from Every tree in this garden, just not that one. The sinful serpent grabbed hold of that law and said to Eve, See, God is a killjoy. God makes your life miserable. God robs the fun. He's the fun hoover who just sucks it all up and takes it out of your world. Rebel against God. Do you see how sin has taken that law? Nothing wrong with that law. Good law protected them and used it. Eve goes, okay, uh, and believes, as does Adam. And so they die spiritually. Death enters the world. And see, Paul is saying the same thing. He was alive apart from law. I mean, not you know, physically alive, of course, but he's just saying, I, I didn't know any better. But when the commandment, when I encountered God's law, sin grasped hold of it and I really rebelled. I died. I knew I died spiritually. The very commandment intended to bring me life actually brought death. Paul heard, do not covet. Sin personified whispered to Paul, why not? What's wrong with coveting? God's a killjoy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, actually I'm going to covet a lot more. And so... Sin stirred him up to greater rebellion. So do you see this dynamic that goes on? Verse 7, law reveals sin. You've got to have that so you know quite how sinful you are. But on the other hand, verse 8 to 11, sin exploits the law. Paul, just to be clear, is the law bad? No. Verse 12, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous and good. But remember, law plus sinful heart equals fruit for death. You've got to have Jesus change you. Law 
plus spirit-changed heart equals fruit for God. Now, it's quite dense and quite technical here. Let me just try and summarize as we finish. Two things to take away. Okay, try and keep it simple. One, you need Jesus to change you. You need Jesus to change you. The way Paul has described it here is a bit like the law is a bit like a, a big maze. You know, a, a big conifer uh, a maze. Like you have at Hampton Court, you know, there's bushes and they're all about 10 foot tall. So, you know, even the tall amongst you can't even sort of jump up and, and peek over. The law is like a maze. Great, fun, enjoyable. The center of the maze is godliness or fruit for God is change. That's where you want to get. You want to bear fruit for God. You want to grow. You want to change. That's where you want to get to. That's at the center of the maze. And so you wander through and think, well, this is quite interesting. And you wander through and find a dead end and get a bit bored. And you think, I know there's a method, isn't it? You sort of, if you put your hand on the right-hand wall, eventually you get there. I'm not sure that's true. Uh, but, you know, you try all things. You try for a few minutes, a couple of hours. Five hours later, you're still in the maze. And at some point you reach, you, say, oh, you despair. And you say, I can't do it. Can someone get me to the center of the maze? And then Jesus appears and says, yes, I can. Look, there's this door. You never saw it. Let me open this door and take your hand and we go right into the center. And that's how you get to change. Godliness. A fundamental use of the law is to make you realize, I need Jesus. I will never change myself. I will never be acceptable to God on my own. I'll always be anxious. Have I done enough? Achieved enough? Been good enough? Oh, I don't know. You'll never change yourself. You need Jesus to change you. That's the first thing. That's kind of what he's saying here. The point of chapter 7. The law is good, but it won't change you. You need Jesus to change you. Second thing, look, do remember Jesus died to bear, excuse me, Jesus died so you would bear fruit. Again, verse 4, once it's the key verse in this little section, verse 4. So, my brothers, you also died to the law through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead. Why did God do all of this? in order that we might bear fruit to God. Oh, look, next week, uh, the whole section is about living life as a Christian and the, the, the struggles, the frustrations, the, 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 the joys of that. But just before we, even as you finish this week, in one sense, what sort of spouse do you want to be? I can put it in those terms. There's a dominant picture here in chapter 7. You don't want to be, if you're, if you're not a Christian, you're not married to Jesus. That might make you happy. It's a funny picture in one sense. But you are wedded to the law. And that is a place of fear. Will God ever accept me? Can I ever do enough? Be enough? Don't do that. You don't want to be a lazy spouse if you're a Christian. Well, Jesus has accepted me. No matter how much I sin, I can, uh, there'll always be more grace. And so it's fine. 
I'll just bumble along and bimble along and uh, never change or never grow. Don't be a lazy spouse. There's no fun in a marriage which is like that, where you never do anything for your partner. There's no pleasure in that. And in a Christian relationship, as you relate to God, it doesn't honor him. Don't be a lazy spouse. But be one who's driven by love, not fear. Don't ask, what's in it for me? What can I get, Jesus? Just be driven by love. That's the ideal marriage. What's Jesus done for me? Oh, Jesus left heaven, came to earth, was willing to die for me, was raised again. That's quite a journey he went through. Why did he do that? He did it for me, so I'd bear fruit. So I'd bear fruit. That's the point of it, for the here and now. Those are the two things to take away. Look, you need Jesus to change you. And he died so that you would bear fruit. So be that sort of Christian, not driven by fear, driven by love, bearing fruit for him. Let me lead us in prayer. Father, in many ways, these are odd pictures to us. I'm not sure we'd write it this way. But we pray we would be delighted with the work of Jesus Christ. We'd be clear we don't want to be under law. We don't want to relate to you out of fear. Will I ever be acceptable? Have I done enough that God loves me today? We would relate to you under grace, knowing that you love us, and therefore our motive, our drive would be Love for you, knowing how very much Jesus Christ has sacrificed for us. Will we be those who understand the law rightly? We don't think that it'll change us on our own, in our own strength. But that we know that Jesus has changed us. So, Father, will we be those who bear fruit for him, for his glory? Amen.